0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, bringing you the show in the Auckland Catholic Diocese in New Zealand. And on our show here, we talk about things Catholic. But let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. So. The apostolate that I'm a part of here in the Auckland Diocese is uh, run by my order, the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, and we provide the sacraments in the Auckland Diocese in the traditional form, that is with the traditional Latin Mass. Every Sunday we have the liturgy sung, and it's at St. Paul's College in um, Ponsonby, And every other day of the week, we have uh, the Masses in Te South at St Anne's Chapel. And that's the low form of the Mass without the singing. But nonetheless, you are all welcome to come along. We have all the sacraments available, confessions every day, and adult uh, instructions on Monday evenings. So for all of this uh, material and and, uh, the program of what we are doing throughout the week, you can find all of this information on our website, which is... FSSP.nz. So FSSP.nz that stands for the priestly fraternity of St. Peter in Latin NZ or on our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. And we want to thank all those people who have been helping us over the years and especially during the this period of time at COVID where we've been able to try and keep as many public masses as we have been allowed to or able to do and we've still got a very good core of uh, committed people coming along to our Masses, but we still have plenty more room on Sunday. so everybody's welcome to come along and look up that information on the Internet to find out uh, more about our contact details and the times of the liturgy. Over the last uh, few months, we have been talking about the history of the Catholic Church and the very, very interesting history of the 13th century in Europe. Uh, one of the high points in uh, the Catholic Renaissance uh, period and a high point of medieval Christianity, uh, of course. But over the last couple of weeks, there had been a turn in the history whereby the power was starting to get to Christian kings and even interrupted and interfered I should say with the papacy and last week we ended up speaking about Pope Boniface the Eighth and his <clears throat> somewhat imprudent actions that he would do whenever he was crossed which was going to lead eventually and will lead to a great decay in the trust of the papacy and set the tone for Uh, eventual breakaways uh, due to poor leadership and it just goes to show that we have to live our lives according as God wants us to that is in grace and humility and with great prudence so that decisions when made are made in a very catholic light so picking up from where we ended off last week um, which was at the time that Pope Boniface VIII had written out a papal bull uh, to the French court, and it was basically ripped up at the same time. And then they even wrote their own um, version of what they wanted to have it written and forged the Pope's signature on it. So at this point in time, the gauntlet had been thrown down, and Pope Boniface VIII did not hesitate to pick it up. As such, he received Bishop Peter de Mornay in consistory with all his cardinals, all of whom he gave, gave him full support. Cardinal Aquasparta opened the meeting with a lengthy explanation of the distinction among spiritual authority, temporal authority, and the Pope's right and duty to act as the moral judge of kings. Boniface Boniface then denounced the forgery of the bull that he had written, the bull called Shirete Volumus, saying that, of course, he had never claimed and would never claim temporal authority over France. And reproving the French bishops for appearing to believe that he did, but he went on, and I quote him here, Our predecessor predecessors have deposed three kings of France, and we say it with sorrow, we are ready to depose one like a groom. Unquote. So whether the Pope could, strictly speaking, depose a king was debatable. Um, For absolving a king's subjects from their duty of allegiance and obedience was not quite that. But did he really need to add at the end, like a groom, it was a very overhanded and obviously imprudent way of uh, trying to assert some authority. So in the spring of uh, the year 1302, the people of Flanders, which is in Belgium, had risen against Philip IV's autocratic rule much as the people of Palermo had risen against Charles I of Naples in the so-called Sicilian Vespers. And in July of that very same year, 1302, the Flemish army defeated the French at the Battle of Courtrai. Pierre Flotte and Count Robert of Artois, who had done much to stir up the conflict between Philip IV and the Pope, were killed in the battle. There was br- briefly some hope that their elimination might reduce the tension between King and Pope. But the appointment of the able and utterly unscrupulous William of Notterrey as the first lawyer of the realm suggested otherwise. Boniface VIII, perhaps hoping for support from Edward I of England, abandoned the cause of the Scots as he had been backing them up until then. He abandoned that cause in August, rebuking the patriotic Scots bishops as sowers of discord and urging them to accept Edward's authority. But he saw no grounds for compromise with Philip IV. And on November the 8th in 1302, he issued yet another bull called Unam Sanctam, proclaiming in the strongest terms in papal history, the superiority of the Pope's authority over all other authority and his right and duty to be the moral judge of kings. It did not specifically claim the exercise of universal temporal authority for the Pope. But its language was open to the interpretation that it made such a claim. The imprudence of its language has caused trouble for the church from its own time right down into our 21st century. I will quote now Pope Boniface VIII from Unam Sanctam: Spiritual power surpasses in dignity and nobility any temporal power whatsoever as spiritual things surpass the temporal. This we see very clearly also by the payment, benediction and consecration of the tithes, by the acceptance of power itself, and by the government even of things. For with truth as our witness, it belongs to spiritual power to establish the terrestrial power and to pass judgment if it has not been good. Therefore, if the terrestrial power err, it will be judged by the spiritual power. If a minor spiritual power err, it will be judged by a superior spiritual power. But if the highest power of all err, it can be judged only by God and not by man. According to the testimony of the apostle in 1 Corinthians, who said, the spiritual man judges all things and he himself is judged by no man. We declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation, that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, So the great problem with this document comes in the last sentence, the last and worst example of Boniface VIII's tendency to overstate. The rest of it is a clear, forthright and effective exposition of the Hildebrandine doctrine of the place of the Pope in Christendom. But the last sentence sounds like a claim of universal sovereignty, temporal as well as spiritual. And also, though this was not an issue at the time, more than 200 years before the appearance of Protestantism, a solemn declaration that only practicing Catholics can be saved. In fact, Pope Boniface VIII, as we have seen, had explicitly repudiated any claim to be a temporal ruler outside the papal state in this very year of 1302 and there's nothing whatever to indicate that he was even thinking of the doctrinal separate question of the salvation of persons who are not practicing Catholics rather he was addressing those in almost universally Catholic Western Central and Northern European countries who might willfully refuse obedience to the Pope despite fully understanding the nature of the office he held and a supreme authority in the spiritual realm. Boniface VIII did not intend to stop with an abstract disquisition on papal authority. In December of 1302, he sent Cardinal John Lemoine to present a 12-point ultimatum to Philip IV, which required him to permit French bishops to go to Rome at any time for meetings to recognise the Pope's supreme authority in bestowing ecclesiastical benefices, and his right to send legates to any country without obtaining anyone's permission, not to take away any goods and rights from the Church in France without papal permission, to prove his innocence of burning the bull auscula fili, or accept the penance for it, to return the city of Lyon to the political control of its bishop, and to make restitution for having twice debased the currency. If the King of France did not respond satisfactorily to these demands, the Pope told Philip IV he would, quote, proceed against him spiritually and temporally, unquote. Cardinal Lemoine arrived in Paris in February of 1303 and delivered his message. Before the month was over, William of Nogaret had developed a plan to seize the Pope by a surprise attack on him in Italy try to force him to resign, and if he would not, bring him to Lyon, where he would be tried on a rebel council in order to depose him as a heretic and a simoniac. On March 7th, royal patent letters were given to William and his companions, Thierry Dersault and Jacques de Jasmin, to treat with anyone, noble or common, clerical or lay, for the purpose of seizing the Pope and bringing him forcibly to France. So the plan to seize the Pope was obviously kept secret. The charges against them were not. William of Nogaret presented them to an assembly of French bishops and nobles called by Philip IV to meet with him at the Louvre on March the 12th. Boniface VIII, he said, was a, quote, false prophet, a master of lies, calling himself good doer, whereas he is evil doer. Though he is not a true president, still, as though he were, he now calls himself the Lord, the Judge, the Master of all men. Noteret made the absurd claim that Pope Celestine V, dead and buried seven years, was still alive and still a true Pope. And he called Boniface VIII a manifest heretic and self-confessed simoniac and urged Philip IV to draw his sword against him and to call a general council to condemn and depose him and elect a better Pope. William of Nottingham had no evidence, no justification, and no precedent as a layman to make any of these wildly malicious charges. Indeed, one would almost need to come down to the communist or even Nazi propaganda of the 20th century to find so many lies and so little truth in a major public pronouncement of a high officer in a Western government. But he had the French king's favour, and we hear of no objections in France to his proceedings. On April 13, Pope Boniface VIII wrote to Cardinal Lemoine in France that he was wholly dissatisfied with Philip's vague and evasive responses to his letters and that Philip had clearly merited excommunication. In a prophetic moment the pope told the cardinal that he was prepared to suffer martyrdom in this cause of maintaining the rightful authority of the Vicar of Christ. Seeking support from the temporal authority which had been set up primarily to defend the Pope, Boniface finally recognized Albert of Habsburg as Emperor, promised to crown him in Rome, and received in turn from Albert an oath of fealty and obedience, which strongly suggests that he was more his father's son than the Pope had previously believed. In May, peace was made between France and England, with Philip totally abandoning his ally Scotland, leaving him free to pursue his struggle against the Pope without distractions or outside threats. In June, Philip publicly called for an ecumenical council and had a huge crowd assemble at the Louvre to hear Nogeret's accusations translated from Latin into French, while a Dominican called on the people of the French capital to aid the king whom he praised as a great defender of the faith. By the beginning of summer, Noteret and a small group of conspirators were ensconced in the castle of Stagia near Siena in Italy. Charles II of Naples, a man of honour, refused to have anything to do with Noteret's conspiracy despite his French blood. Neither could the conspirators find any significant support in Rome. But Chiara Colonna, ...joined them with enthusiasm... ...and Rinaldo de Supino... ...captain of the city of Ferentino... ...near Anagni, ...agreed to help if he were well paid... ...but only on the condition... ...that Nogeret lead the attack on the Pope... ...carrying the French royal standard... ...which Nogeret reluctantly... ...agreed to do. Meanwhile in mid-August... ...the Pope scornfully dismissed the charges... ...of heresy against him... ...deprived the teachers at the Universities of Paris the most famous in Christendom, of their faculties to teach and confer degrees, saying Philip had, had corrupted them and began the drafting of a new bull, reiterating his right and authority to act as the moral judge of kings and stating that Philip the false sins against the church justified his excommunication and the freeing of his subjects from their oaths and duties of allegiance to him. Though he stopped short of actually decreeing Philip's excommunication and of releasing his subjects from their obligation of obedience to him, September came and William of Nogaret learned that the Pope planned to publish his new bull against Philip IV on the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lady Sunday, September the 8th. Nogaret decided to prevent his publication by seizing the Pope on the 7th. On the evening of Friday the 6th, he gathered the formidable force of 300 horse and 1,000 foot at Ferentino, the stronghold of Reynald of Supino. Chiara Colonna supplied and commanded the greater part of the cavalry, which was accompanied by Peter Colonna, the former cardinal, his son Stephen, and various other Italian noblemen with grievances against the Pope or members of his family. The entire party was Italian except for William of Nogeret and two companions, but they led it carrying the French flag, as Reynald of Supino had specified. Through the night, they picked their way along a remote hill path undetected. At five o'clock in the morning, they arrived at the walls of Anagni, where a gate was opened for them by a traitor. Pope Boniface VIII is close to 70. And he had been in poor health. He had never been involved directly in any kind of combat. At dawn the alarm sounds in the usual peaceful street the usually peaceful streets of Ainani, now filled filling fast with armed strangers. The people gather in the central square. They elect a the captain to organize their defence, Adenulf Conti. But his brother Nicholas is one of the leaders of the attacking force, and Adenulf makes no resistance. Seven cardinals are in the city. They three flee at once. <clears throat> the Dominican Nicholas Bon Boccasini and Peter of Spain rush to the pope's aid. Napoleon Orsini and Richard of Siena remain unmolested, perhaps in league with the attackers. A truce is called until mid-afternoon during which Boniface is told to reinstate the Colonna (coughs) excuse me hand over all treasure to three senior cardinals resign and deliver himself up to the attackers as their prisoner naturally he refused the truce expired at three o'clock in the afternoon and an assault on the papal palace in Anani begins at once the palace is on the crest of the hill of which the town is built The Pope's nephew, Marquis Peter Gaetani, Gaetani directs the defences, and at first they seem to hold. Then the attackers storm the cathedral adjacent to the palace, set fire to its doors, plunder it, killing a visiting archbishop inside, and from it gain access into the palace. Peter Gaetani capitulates. At six o'clock, the attackers break through the windows and doors of the street side of the palace, shouting, Long live the King of France and the Colonna. Death to the Pope. Boniface, wearing his papal robes, takes in his hands a crucifix containing wood of the true cross and orders. Open the doors and my chamber. I wish to suffer martyrdom for the Church of God. He lies down upon a couch with a crucifix on his breast. The attackers stormed into the room. He looks up at them and says, Come forward, strike my head. I wish to suffer martyrdom. I wish to die for the faith of Christ. Here is my neck. Here is my head. Sciara Colonna wanted to kill him at once, but others restrained him. Boniface VIII was probably manhandled, by the attackers, Cardinal Boccasini, his successor as Pope, who was in the palace at the time, says he was. Though others deny it, one chronicle reports that Sciarra Colonna struck him in the face with a mailed fist. It is clear that for a few minutes his life hung in the balance. However, William of Nazareth did not want the Pope murdered. He rushed to the Pope's chamber just a few minutes after. A arrived there to be greeted by Boniface VIII with a magnificent flash of spirit. What do you hear, son of a Paterine? That is a, a Catharist heretic. Notaret replied with a lash of his tongue. I wish to conserve the life of the Church against the violence of your enemies by presenting you to a general council which I request you to convoke. If you refuse to do so, it will be convened in spite of you. It is a question of heresy, and you should be judged willingly or unwillingly. I arrest you in virtue of the rule of public law for the defence of the faith and the interest of our Holy Mother, the Church, not to insult you nor anyone else. Sorry, Pope, that you are. Consider the goodness of your Lord, the King of France, who guards and protects your kingdom against your enemies. Boniface VIII made no recorded response to this incredible farrago beyond reiterating his refusal to resign and his desire for martyrdom. Ornaments were torn from his body and his palace was thoroughly plundered. All the next day, Sunday, the feast of the Nativity of Our Lady, William of Nazaret debated with Schiara Colonna and grappled with the insoluble problem always confronting those who capture a pope. Now that you have him, what do you do with him? Schiara was still for killing him. Nozorette wanted to bring him to France, but was beginning to realize, one wonders why he had not thought of it this before, just how difficult it would be. Not all of his Italian force, perhaps very little of it, would escort him the whole way. And he had no naval support. In Angnangi, the initial shock and confusion from all the betrayals had given way to horror. Christendom would forever condemn a city that allowed the Pope to be murdered in its midst. At three o'clock in the morning of Monday, September 9, the townspeople attacked the palace crying, Long live the Pope, death to the foreigner. There was only feeble resistance from the now thoroughly disorganized captors of the Pope. Chiara Colonna leapt on his horse and galloped out of the city. Reynald of Superno and Adenulf Conti were captured. William of Nogaret was wounded and lost his French standard, which was dragged in the mud, but he could still walk and slipped out through the crowd, unrecognized, until he could find a horse and ride away. Cardinal Richard of Siena fled in servant's clothes, and Boniface VIII came out into the central square to absolve and thank the people, declaring that he forgave everyone who had injured him. Cardinal Matthew Rosso Orsini then arrived with 400 horsemen who a week later escorted the Pope to Rome, where Charles II of Naples sent 10,000 men to guard him. But the shock had been too great. On October 12th, just over a month after the attack, Pope Boniface VIII died in the small hours of the morning, peacefully after professing his faith and confessing his sins. The conclave to elect his successor convened nine days later. William of Nazareth had the staggering presumption to attend it as a representative of Philip IV. Cardinal Nicholas Boccassini was chosen Pope the following day and took the name of Benedict XI. On November the 6th, he issued an encyclical on the events at Anagni, describing the perpetrators of the seizure of the Pope as sons of iniquity, the firstborn of Satan, children of perdition and demanding restoration on pain of excommunication of all the papal property plundered in the palace and the cathedral. But he took no specific action against the persons known to have taken part in the attack and began removing some of the disabilities on Philip IV and on the Colonnas. Historians long believe that this vicious assault on Pope Boniface VIII, which clearly led to his death, even though, even if he was not seriously abused physically during it, sent a shock wave of horror around Christendom, as indeed it should have done. But in fact, except for a few unusually re- perceptive orders, like observers, perceptive observers like Dante, quoted on the attack on Boniface VIII of the head. Um, which I read out earlier, there seems to have been few instances of such reaction. Boniface had not been popular, and the deep reverence for the Vicar of Christ that had characterized Christendom for 250 years was fading in the power struggles of the end of the 13th century. Surprisingly, little notice was taken of the violence at Aignani, weakening the new pope's hand as he prepared to deal with it. Pope Benedict XI seemed to have decided that he was not strong enough to dis- disciple Philip IV directly, but that he could and must still punish the leaders of the attack. On Holy Thursday of 13.04, he absolved Philip IV from excommunication, though he had shown no signs of repentance. And in the bull titled Quanta Ros, issued on April 2nd, he absolved Philip of all censures pronounced against him. But in May, after again condemning the attack on Boniface VIII, he anathematized all who had been concerned in it. And in June, he denounced the leaders of the assault by name, excommunicating them and ordering them before him for judgment during the octave of the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. The bull fludgeteosum shellus, which contains this denunciation, reads like a cry of the Hebrew people, and I quote... These crimes were committed publicly and under our very eyes. Crimes of laissez-majeste, of rebellion, of sacrilege, of felony, of theft, of rapine, the mere thought of which excites horror. Who would be so cruel as not to shed tears, as spiteful as not to be moved to compassion? What judge would be so negligent as not to be eager to proceed? also merciful and clement as not to become severe. Security had been has been violated, immunity offended. One's own country has not been a protection. The domestic fireside has not been a refuge. A sovereign pontiff has been outraged and with her spouse made a prisoner. The church herself has been made a captive, where henceforth Find a safe place. What sanctuary will be respected after the violence violation of that of the Roman pontiff? O oh, inextricable crime. O oh, unfortunate Ainani My the rain and the side of thee. Sorry, my the rain and the dew fall on you no more. May the rain, but descending on other mountains pass to the side of thee, because the hero has fallen, that which was invented with strength has been overcome under your eyes and you could have prevented it, unquote. So um, there is once again, as we ended up last week, a massive standoff going again between um, the the King of France and the Pope and the standoff seems to just continue as this power grab uh, is really dragging down the spiritual lives of all involved and this is the problem the church finds itself in at the beginning of the 14th century. So we are going to conclude for today as our time is up, but I invite everybody to come along, listen into to the show next week and especially if you are in Auckland, New Zealand, come along to the Latin Mass, join in in our sung mass at St. Paul's College. A Mass at 9 a.m. Uh, in, the, in the school chapel there with a beautiful Gregorian chant. And now I'll conclude with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May God bless and keep you, and have a happy and holy weekend. And I hope you are able to get to church and pay homage to Almighty God, so worthy of all of our love.